that's partly him playing to their base and playing to their audience. Uh, you know, the, the, the credulous boomer rube demo that backs Donald Trump. This was an earthquake unlike any earthquake I've really seen since Ronald Reagan in 1980. It just came out of nowhere. Donald Trump's a smart one in there. Oh, y'all, y'all, y'all elitists are dumb. <laughs> Donald Trump is the new president of the United States. Mm -hmm. Wow. You, you elitists with your geography and your maps and your spelling. It's my high honor and distinct privilege to introduce to you the president-elect of the United States of America. Hi, everybody. So I want to take a moment to talk about Liberty Dad. I also happen to call him a lightweight, okay? And I have said that, so I would like to take that back. He's really not that much of a lightweight. It is not enough to talk about liberty. One must believe it. It is not enough to believe in liberty. One must work at it. It is not enough to work at liberty. One must convince others likewise. Reimagining how we do politics. Welcome to Liberty Day. Welcome to Episode 5 of Liberty Dad Podcast, where we reimagine how we do politics by exploring a different approach. I'm your host, DL. This week's show is Jeers to Cheers, where I'll discuss what really took Trump to the White House. Last week, I spoke in error announcing this show was officially on a podcast hosting service. However, Spotify is currently the only listing service that has approved the show. Feel free to check out LibertyDad.com, where you can always find the most recent show. Updates will be provided as other listing services approve the show. Let's get into it. Hey everyone, back again and today we are discussing elitist arrogance and how it got Trump elected in 2016 and how I believe it will assist in his re-election come November. Let's get the obligatory disclaimer out of the way. I don't want people to feel compelled to make any spurious claims. I am not a Trump supporter, okay? I did not vote for him in 2016, nor do I intend to in November. Now, anything can happen between now and when I vote, but the chances are pretty low. Like, really low. Awesome. I expect we can all focus on my criticism of, quote, elitist, without pretending I'm just defending President Trump. The show hooked interspersed a clip of Don Lemon, Waja Ali and Rick Wilson discussing an, an exchange between Mike Pompeo and an NPR reporter. At one point, Rick Wilson starts making jokes and, well, let's be fair and play the whole clip. Here it goes. Of course, it, it, it's, it's a, it's, he's just trying to demean her and it, obviously it's false. And look, he also knows deep in his heart that Donald Trump couldn't find Ukraine on a map if you had the letter U and a picture of an actual physical crane <laughs> next to it. He knows that this is, you know, an, an administration defined by ignorance of the world. And so that's partly him playing to their base and playing to their audience, uh, you know, the, the, the credulous boomer rube demo that backs Donald Trump. Um, that, that wants to think that, that, that Donald Trump's a smart one in there. Y'all elitists are dumb. You, you elitists with your geography and your maps and your spelling, even though my your math and your reading. Yeah, you're reading, you know, your geography, knowing other countries, sipping your latte. All those lines on the map. <laughs> 
Only them elitists know where Ukraine is. <laughs> Sorry, I apologize. But by, no, but by the way, Ukraine. Oh my god. But, but, but you know what? But, but it was Rick's fault. I blame Rick. Oh but, you know, but, but in all honesty, but all, blame you know what Rick. NPR should do? Why not? Sorry, hold on. You, wait, wait. Can wait, I tell give you? Me a second. You, hold on, hold on, hold on. Sorry. That was good. Sorry. Rick, you, that you, was a good one. I needed that. Hmm. Interesting. An NPR reporter was interviewing Mike Pompeo, and he became agitated about Ukraine questions, and then he cut the interview short. After it's claimed, he berated her and asked her to find Ukraine on a map. No doubt about it, if true, and I have no reason to believe it's not, he's a jerk. Period. In this clip, though, Rick suggests Donald Trump couldn't find Ukraine on a map. He then shifts and talking about Pompeo, says, quote, he knows this is an administration defined by ignorance of the world. That's partly him playing to their base and playing to their audience, the credulous boomer rube demo that backs Donald Trump, unquote. Then he launches into the stereotypical Southern accent, decrying elitist and education, at which Wajat chimes in, and then they both continue mocking voters. Now remember, Rick accuses Pompeo of playing to their base and their audience. But there wasn't an audience. As Mary Louise Kelly tells us, that's the NPR reporter, Pompeo cut the interview short and berated her in a room privately. Yet Mike and Wajat went from criticizing Pompeo to making a joke about Trump to all-out ridicule of their vision of who Trump voters are. You know, I came across a quote a long time ago, and it stuck out in my mind. It's very relevant here. Here it goes. For those with the vision of the anointed, it is not sufficient to discredit or denigrate proponents of the tragic vision. The general public must also be discredited. Thomas Sowell, The Vision of the Anointed, 1995. Now, in that quote, Dr. Sowell compares two visions, the tragic in the ancient Greek sense against intellectual's vision. It's a very enlightening book, and I highly recommend it. I have long asserted that Trump was elected because people on the right, and I'm, and I'm grouping people here, were tired of being social punching bags. They were tired of pompous intellectuals proudly and publicly using gross mischaracterizations to mock them. And don't mistake this as a dig at freedom of speech. Oh no, I remain a full defender of free speech from any government intrusion. That doesn't mean that anyone is obligated to listen or assist you with your message. And that doesn't mean you are free from criticism. Only free from government interference. Wajah and Rick and Don by virtue of his laughter and expressed enjoyment, they were simply doing what elites have been doing for a very, very long time. Now, Pompeo deserves to be ridiculed for his behavior. Even if Ms. Kelly surprised him with a Ukraine question, he should expect that from the media. It's their job to dig. Trump, he's a public figure. It comes with the territory. But I find the contempt and ridicule for the American people offensive, and more importantly, an explanation for Trump's presidency. 
let's take a look at some examples to support my claim. What follows is a mix of headlines and direct quotes. And it's rather long, so try to stay with me. Here it goes. You're a damn liar, man. That's not true. If you want to take my shape, let's do push-ups together. Let's run. Let's do whatever you want to do. Let's take an IQ test. That was Joe Biden, December 6, 2019, speaking to a voter in a town hall. How the Republican Party became the party of racism. The Root, July 23, 2018. Research finds that racism and sexism and status fears drove Trump voters. April 24, 2018. How unconscious sexism could explain Trump's win. 538, January 21, 2017. Hostility toward women is one of the strongest predictors of Trump support. Vox, November 1, 2016. And who could forget this memorable quote? You can put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. They're racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, Islamophobic, you name it. Hillary Clinton, September 9, 2016, speaking at a rally. Conservatives, evil, and psychopathy. Science makes the link. Salon.com, May 2, 2014. Your right wing, you must be stupid. Spiked online, August 13, 2013. Low IQ and conservative beliefs linked to prejudice. Live science, January 26, 2012. Racist code underlies Trump's rise. Politico.com, May 2, 2011. Why liberals are more intelligent than conservatives. Psychology Today, March 22, 2010. Conservatives lack sense of humor, study finds. Psychology Today, May 5, 2009. Here's another quote. People have been beaten down so long, they feel so betrayed by government. So, it's not surprising that they get bitter and they cling to guns or religion or antipathy towards people who aren't like them as a way to explain their frustrations. Barack Obama, April 12, 2008, speaking to a small crowd. Liberal Interpretation Rigging a study to make conservatives look stupid. Slate.com, September 14, 2007. Okay, that's enough. You get the picture. And these are examples I found through obvious keyword searches. The list gets exponentially longer when you find the more nuanced quotes from celebrities and other high-profile individuals. To give you an idea... Here is Melinda Byerly, a CEO and co-founder of a marketing consulting firm in San Francisco. This comes from back in 2017, and I'm editing it slightly, just slightly, for brevity and profanity. Here it goes. One thing middle America could do is realize that no educated person wants to live in a crap hole with stupid people, especially violent, racist, and or misogynistic ones. So if you want jobs, Clean up your act and make your town a place that people like us want to live in. Add fiber internet. Make it a point to elect a progressive city council and commit to not being bigots. But just in case there is any doubt that you think I'm simply finding what I was looking for, consider this excerpt from an article in The Atlantic titled, Republican is not a synonym for racist. Quote, 
conservatives need liberals to stop abusing their cultural power. Although conservatives dominate America's elected offices, liberals wield the greater power to stigmatize. End quote. And then there's this article from the New Republic titled, Elitism is Liberalism's Biggest Problem. And the subtitle reads, quote, There are plenty of non-deplorables in middle America. The Democrats need to learn how to embrace them. End quote. And then the entire article ends with this quote, If we don't find a way to welcome them, they'll go to the other side. That isn't how majorities are built. Unfortunately, it's how elections are lost. It's one thing to take aim at the Trumps, the Bushes, the Clintons, and other public figures. It's quite another to paint with such a broad brush against regular, everyday people. Consider the often pejorative nature of terms like Republican, Conservative, Middle America, Flyover Country, Redneck, Gun Nuts, White, Male, Privileged, and so on. Also, consider the outright slurs like sexist, racist, xenophobic, Islamophobic, misogynistic, bigot, ableist, transphobic, and the list grows every year. Those on the left don't completely avoid these epithets, but they pale in comparison to usage against those on the right. But how did this get Trump elected? I believe people on the right were simply tired of constantly defending themselves against such rhetoric. I remember many people unsuccessfully attempting to defend against charges of racism during my 20s. And the popular defense was, I'm not a racist, I, I have black friends. Or they might say, I have a black spouse or maybe a child. And it never, ever worked. Almost always, it ended up being used as additional evidence. But it wasn't always the fault of liberals or left-leaning individuals. The Republican Party played a role, too. For quite a while, too many Republican leaders stepped up and were beaten back, often by the media and usually a result of their own failing. Remember Todd Akin's 2012 Senate run? During an interview, he commented on rape and abortion, saying this, quote, First of all, from what I understand from doctors, that's really rare. If it's a legitimate rape, the female body has ways to shut that whole thing down, end quote. And as you probably guessed, he backpedaled, apologized, and then went on to lose a race that he had been projected to win. And when Republicans weren't saying foolish things, they frequently failed to stand up to critics. It kind of felt like they were trying to suck up to the media only to find out that it didn't work. And what voter wants a choice between foolish or weak need? Then came Trump. When he announced his campaign, and go back and listen, he bragged about being rich, something wealthy Republicans usually had a tough time discussing. And people loved it. It didn't matter whether he was or not. He embraced it and many other things that usually signal an end for politicians. And he turned the media upside down. Trump became the leader people were waiting for, and then a whole lot more. He didn't energize their inner racism, as it was often said. Those weren't poor 
or credulous boomer rubes. Hell, if you look at Statista.com, Hillary received more votes than Trump in the under 50K demographics, while Trump received higher a higher number of votes, though not tremendously, but still higher. He received higher votes for those in the 50K and higher demographics. And the only thing that proves is that the stereotype of a Trump voter is wildly inaccurate. Republicans and conservatives have had their fair share of foul voices, no doubt. The difference here is those on the left, those who identify as progressive, liberal, or otherwise left-leaning have dominated rhetoric in the public square. And if you don't believe me, think of all the isms and phobics in the current political discourse. Trump has the incumbent advantage. Regardless, four years later, and his opponents still keep underestimating him. We saw it on display with the impeachment. He just keeps going. When I look at the political landscape, I see continued epithets, slurs, and mocking towards people that are just trying to present their view. And it lets me know that those most officious with their derision have not learned their lesson. Before I go into the next segment, I want to end on a more positive note. Rick Wilson, the man making the joke in the CNN segment, he had this to say about Rush Limbaugh's recent cancer revelation. Quote, I wish Rush a speedy and complete recovery from his cancer. Human being pro tip, don't wish cancer on anyone, even on your adversaries. End quote. And let me tell you, we need more of that, less of the rube talk. And now, for a bill review. But I know I'll be a law someday, at least I hope and pray that I will. But today I am still just a bill. This week's bill review covers Gun Violence Prevention and Community Safety Act of 2020. It's a bill championed by Senator Elizabeth Warren. The beginning says this, quote, a bill to end the epidemic of gun violence and build safer communities by strengthening federal firearm laws and supporting gun violence research intervention and prevention initiatives, end quote. The bill is 260 pages long, so I will not be able to cover more than just a few items. And honestly, I didn't read the bill in its entirety. I only had time to skim and hone in on a few items. This is a very onerous bill. It covers quite a few areas, such as licensing, background checks, firearm possession, extreme risk protection orders, that's red flag laws, by the way, assault weapons, silencers, trafficking, dealer and industry reform. Whew, it's a lot. The bill starts by stating it is unlawful for any unlicensed person to knowingly purchase, acquire, or possess a firearm or ammunition. So no license, no guns or bullets. Pretty simple. It then goes on to tell us what constitutes being eligible for a license. Here's the list. You must be 21. You must pass a written and hands-on test. You must submit to a background check and a national criminal history check. You must submit a photo. And you must not be determined by a court or prohibited by law, which read a bit open-ended. Then it goes on to mention various time frames related to eligibility. Okay, so let's talk about this extreme risk protection order, otherwise known as red flag laws. It's defined pretty simply as a court order that prohibits someone from purchasing, possessing, or receiving a firearm or ammunition. 
Here's where it gets interesting. Under prohibited individuals, the bill defers to the state to, quote, take into consideration whether limitations may be warranted based on, and then it gives a very long list. So let's back up here a little bit. What it's doing is it's saying, here are a list of items that we're going to defer to each state to consider. So it's not a mandate. Out of this next list that I'm about to read, each state could de decide on their own whether or not this will make you a prohibited individual. So here it goes. Criminal history, if they've been deemed a danger to himself or herself or other individuals by a court or authorized administrative body, if they've been committed to a hospital or institution as a danger to himself or herself or other individuals, age, legal residency, military dishonorable discharges, whether an, in, whether an individual is subject to a permanent or temporary protection order, has ever been convicted of a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence, outside outstanding arrest warrants, status as a fugitive, renunciation of United States citizenship, other factors relevant to the suitability of a license holder. Huh. Okay, on that last item, you might be wondering, what does suitability mean? Well, you're in luck. It's defined as, quote, an individual that does not create a risk to public safety, end quote. So, remember, a red flag law is where a judge can order you no longer fit to keep your firearms, bullets, or acquire either. And the police may come to your house and confiscate them. Remember what the bill's intent on, in the beginning was? To end the epidemic of gun violence and build safer communities. Ask yourself this. Based on the various tragedies we've been told show the a need for additional gun legislation, how many of those limitations that I just read would have prevented them? Well, let's take a look. The El Paso shooter, who killed 22, didn't meet any of these criteria. Neither did the Virginia Beach shooter, who killed 12. The Parkland shooter, who killed 17? He was deemed a threat, though not formally, and various people recommended him to be institutionalized, though he was not. However, based on my reading of this list, it requires a formal, documented instance of each. It's unlikely these limits would have stopped him either. The Thousand Oaks shooting, 13 people dead. Pittsburgh Synagogue shooting, 11 dead. And the Santa Fe High School shooting, 10 dead. None would have necessarily been prevented by these gun laws. Most of the shooters in six mass shootings killing 84 people would unlikely have been prevented from acquiring a firearm. One, in retrospect, was considered odd, and only the Parkland shooter had any meaningful warning signs of impending evil action. All the rest appeared normal. One or two had some hateful ramblings on, online, but that was something that people weren't really aware of until after the fact. More than just overarching, the evidence does not support the supposed gain. Okay, one last item. At the very end is the what they call the severabil severability clause. It reads as follows. If any provision of this act or any amendment made by this act or any application of such provision or amendment to any person or circumstance 
is held to be invalid, the remainder of the provisions of this Act and the amendments made by this Act and the application of the provision or amendment to any other person or circumstance shall not be affected. Ugh, that's a lot of verbiage to say. If something in this bill is deemed invalid, the rest of it stands. I'm just a layperson, so this isn't a legal opinion. Any American should find themselves very concerned with this very strict 260-page bill. It would force you to piecemeal dismantle it. Okay, so that's all I have, folks. I hope you found this episode enlightening. Be sure to find me on Liberty Dad or Liberty Dad Podcast on Facebook and DL underscore Liberty Dad on Twitter. And let me know what you think. Catch you next time, and I'm out.